Good morning. We do have several families out and about on vacation. It's just that time of year, and um, that's all right. We'll uh, remember them. And uh, in case you ever are going to miss, just want to remind you of we do have a podcast out. It's uh, Harvest Hill. Uh, you can find uh, through iTunes podcast. There's also, you can find it online through the church's website in case you ever miss. And we do a lot of series here. And I know you may be like me that you just don't like to miss an episode. So anyway, uh, just a reminder, that's out there now. Uh, we are uh, in our final week of Dear Church. You can see behind me, we've been looking at the seven churches focused on in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter two and three. This morning, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. If you want to begin making your way there, we're, we're going to be dealing with the church of Laodicea this morning, which is probably one of the more uh, well-known of passages concerning any of the seven churches. If you've ever heard of the phrase, you know, you're lukewarm, well, Laodicea was a lukewarm church, and that's where that passage comes from. If you've ever heard of the phrase that Jesus stands at the door of your heart and knocks and waits for you to invite him in, that comes also from the, a passage dealing with the church of Laodicea. Interesting thing about some of the passages that we can be familiar with, particularly concerning Laodicea this morning, is a lot of times we can misinterpret those passages and make them mean something that they're not actually implying to say. And so we're going to be walking through this and see what the Word of God is actually saying and uh, deal with some of the misinterpretations and why many people have gotten to that interpretation in dealing with this church. If you have your scriptures with you, again, we're going to begin in verse 14 of the book of Revelation, very last book of the New Testament, very last book of the Bible. And beginning in verse 14, the word of the Lord says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's jump up to the very beginning. We're going to walk through this beginning in verse 14. And as we've seen with every single church beginning in chapter 2, uh, every single church has this introduction of Christ's authority upon the church and to the church, sometimes as a way of a reminder, uh, sometimes a way of an encouragement to that particular church. Laodicea is one of the seven churches that is, does not receive any sort of commendation. It is a church that is, Christ comes to it and gives it a full rebuke. And from the very beginning, beginning in verse 14, we see that Jesus is the confirmation of God. Read that in verse 14. And the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. 
From the very onset before Jesus even deals with the issue of the church of Laodicea, he comes to confirm who he is as declared by God that he is from the beginning of God's creation. It is to speak of his eternal nature, his authority as, as being the same authority as God the Father. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, the word of the Lord says that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and, in, and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, that for, for from Him and through Him and to Him all things are all things, and to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 6, the word of the Lord says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So Jesus comes to this church that is struggling, that is dealing with an, a very strong issue that churches can fall into, which we'll deal with in a second. The first thing he has to declare to this church is his nature, his equality with God, his eternal divine being, which is a promise to this church that God is fully aware of this church. He knows where this church is, but it's also a promise to us that despite our sins and our struggles, because we may be dealing with the same thing Laodicea is dealing with, is that God from the very beginning, before we could ever sin, before we could even breathe the breath of life in our lungs the very first time we came into this earth, that God had His Savior set in place. There's no sin so great that Jesus does not come to us and beg for us to return to the Father and beg to us to repent of our sins and come into a relationship and back into harmony with God. There's no sin that is too great and greater than the love of God. And so Jesus reminds this church off the bat before He... Re, he uh, brings the comment or the, the condemnation upon the church of who he is that I have been before all times and I am the faithful and true witness. He says that I am the the words of the Amen, that he is the all that God desires. Everything Jesus is, is everything that God desires of us. Everything that God desires us to live and to be and to say. Jesus says, I am that. I am the amen. I am the confirmation of all of God's plan, all of God's purpose, all that God wants to reveal, all that God wants you to be. I am Him. But when we come to the word amen, we can use that in a lot of different ways and sometimes they're biblical and unbiblical. Um, this last week, my parents came down and and hung out with us for a couple days. My dad began telling me a story of when he was a pastor up in northern Missouri, his little bitty town. You may have heard it's called Milan. And he was a pastor at First Baptist Church at that time, which was just a smaller church. And I remember the church quite a bit because that was the church I was baptized in. But they had a revival service. And being in a small town, when you had a revival service back in the 80s, some of y'all 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 know the word revival services. So revival services, back in the 80s, you'd say you have a revival, particularly in a small community, and the community would just come out. I mean, you would just give the word of mouth, maybe put an ad in the, in the local paper, and people would just come out to the revival services, and that was just the way it is. Today, when you say revival, it's... 
Uh, some people just don't understand what that means. But as people came out to this small little First Baptist, Southern Baptist church there in northern Missouri, they were from all different denominations. And my dad told a story of a gentleman who came from a different denomination that was uh, more Pentecostal in nature than some Southern Baptist churches. And this man was moved by the Spirit to amen everything the preacher had to say. So when the preacher said something like, and she died, amen. And the prophet called the bear to come out of the woods and maul the teenagers. Amen. And he drove the spear through them both and they died. Amen. And Saul relieved himself in the cave. Amen. And they gouged out his eyes. Amen. I mean, every single time. Amen. And we don't really do that a whole lot in churches, though you may have been at a churches where you hear a pastor say, you know, and amen, right? Amen. Can I get an amen? Like, you know, it's like an auctioneer for an amen or something like that. And that's fine. I've done that at times. I I know there's a time for calling, but sometimes we can use it unbiblically. Sometimes we can say amen just because we like what the way something sounds or that it's something we simply agree with, though it may not actually be in agreement with the word of God. We say amen. Sometimes we go through an experience. We say, oh, amen, Jesus. And, And it's just because the experience made us feel good, but it may not exactly be the way God uses the word amen. Sometimes we be we can be prompted for like, for example, a Baptist preacher may say and all God's people said. See, you know how it works. And so you don't, what am I amening? What am I in agreement with? What am I confirming at that moment? And, and so sometimes we think it in our head. You know, a preacher says, I'm at my final point. We say, amen. We say, a beautiful sunrise. We say, amen. God is good. Amen. What does the word amen mean? When Jesus comes to this church later to see it, because it's so important to understand what Jesus is first beginning with, when he says, I am the words of the amen, he is telling this church, look, I am who I say I am. I am who I say I am, and I am who those who testify me about me say I am. It's, a, it's synonymous to when God came to Moses, the burning bush, and said, I am. Jesus is coming to this church and saying, I am am everything that the scriptures have said about me and I have done everything to which God has set me aside to do. I am the amen. I am the faithful. I am the true witness. I am the authentic, genuine confirmation of God's word and I am everything to which confirms God's plan for your life. He's telling this church, I am the word to the amen is that I have come to confirm what you need to hear And what he reveals to this church isn't exactly easy, but when we come to times of amen in our own portion of life, maybe in prayer, I mean, almost all of us probably sit down and pray together and and we say amen. We need to understand when we get to that point, when we're beginning to sign off on our prayer and we say amen, what we're doing is we're saying, God, okay, no matter what I just prayed, no matter what my heart really wants and what I desire, I'm saying amen. I am, I am signing off on this. I'm saying that no matter what, what happens, I am trusting you that you will align everything I am praying to your pleasing and perfect will. Amen. God, I'm giving you full authority over everything I've just prayed to do what needs to be done because I know your plan is for my good and it's for my welfare. So, amen. And Jesus tells his church, I am the amen from the beginning of time. See, the problem with Laodicea here is they had forgotten Jesus. 
This church, as you read through this, they're not aligning themselves to the Messiah, but what they're aligning themselves to is their own merit. And Paul had to warn Timothy about doing that in our own life when we try to align ourselves to our own merit. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul in the Bible says, "...the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to which I am the foremost." See, the danger in thinking that we're something that we aren't is we begin to take our eyes and our mind and our hearts off Jesus Christ. We begin to think that we're something without Christ, that we are no longer in need of Christ. So Jesus says, I am your faithful witness. And what that means to us in this moment is Jesus comes to us in this moment, look, I am the faithful witness. I am going to be faithful for you and I'm going to, or to be faithful against you. But I will be faithful. And everything I witness about is going to be true. It is going to be genuine. It is going to be authentic. It is going to be real, which is the exact opposite of Laodicea was being. They were not a true church and not a genuine church. And so Jesus says, I'm going to be faithful to you, but I'm also going to be true to you. And sometimes truth is hard to hear. Sometimes truth is not always what we want. But Jesus says, I'm going to give you nothing but the truth. And so he comes to this church in verse 15. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that, you would, would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I want you to notice something, because this is one verse that we can be misinterpreted a lot. When, when Jesus comes, he does not say that hot or cold is either wrong. He does not say, I wish you were hot, but since you're cold, I'm going to spit your mouth. I wish you were cold, but since you're hot, I'm going to spit your mouth. He says, I wish you were one or the other, but you're kind of stuck right here in the middle. You don't, he doesn't condemn the, the hot and coldness, but there's a lot of interpretations out there that we take this metaphorically. That to be hot for Jesus, to be hot for God means I am, I am passionate. I have this zeal for the Christian faith. I have this pursuit of holiness. So to be cold would be the exact opposite that I have no passion for God, I have no zeal for holiness, no zeal for righteousness. And so I want to be hot, not cold. But Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold, but I wish you were one or the other. And if one was worse than the other, then why would Jesus wish that upon any of his people or any of his church? Why would he say, I wish you were cold, because then at least I would know you're disgusting to me, or I wish you were hot. Oh, if, if one was better than the other, why wouldn't Jesus condemn one than the other? But he doesn't. He condemns their lukewarmness, not their temperature gauge. But this is a church that thought they were something. He says that, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. But then he says in verse 17 that you say I am rich. You say I have prospered. You say I need nothing. This is a church that felt that they had it all together. They had it all mapped out. They had everything they ever needed. But when people looked upon them, when God looked upon them, he looked and said, is that, is that my church? Are those my people? That's the worst place we can be in this world right now. Where people say, well, I think that's a church. Not because of the building, but because of the way we act. The way people perceive us. The worst place we can be is like, well, I, I think they're Christian. There should be no shadow of a doubt as people look upon Harvest Hill as a church and people look upon us as individuals that we belong to Christ. But the church of Laodicea had no temperature gauge whatsoever of that. They were lukewarm. 
And Jesus comes and says, I wish you were one of the other. Contextually, if we, if we understand what's going on here, we can understand what's actually being said to this church. The town of Laodicea had a river that flowed into it. That river was fed by a hot spring about five miles north. So when that spring came up and flowed the water into Laodicea, the water that would come into Laodicea was lukewarm, which means it wasn't cold on a refreshing day. It didn't refresh you, and it wasn't hot, so you could use it for therapeutical reasons. So this water that came into the town would have to be worked with. You had to do something in order for it to be beneficial to an individual. And Jesus says, you're just like this water that nobody likes that is of no use unless you put some effort into it. You've put no effort into being the church, no effort into being my people, and so you are lukewarm. You're like this water you can't do anything with unless you work with. You're not refreshing to the world, and you're not, you're not therapeutic to the world. This is where we are. We need to be refreshing. I need to be a cold beverage on a hot day. We understand that term this week, don't we? A cold beverage on a hot day to this world. This world that is corrupted by sin. I need to be refreshing. Harvest Hill has to be refreshing to the world. We give the message of refreshment, the living water. But we also bring the message of passion and zeal, of hotness, of therapeutic, of healing. The message of the gospel. That there is a God who created all things. He had a son who was with him from the beginning. And all of us someday are going to bow down before the Father and confess Jesus Christ as Lord, whether we did it on this side of eternity or not. And so we come with refreshment, but we also come with therapeutic. Because the Bible says that all of us are sinners. And so we come with a message of healing. That's what hot and cold is. I am refreshing and I am healing. And Jesus says to this church, you're neither. You're not refreshing this world and you're not taking any impurities out of this world. And so what Jesus says is that I'm going to spit you out. Which is a very interesting word because most Bibles do not translate that word correctly. The word means vomit. If you need an image, this is kind of what it looks like. You got it, Brie? That's the cleanest one I could find. Um, this is what Jesus says to his church. Hey, look, you're not refreshing. You're not therapeutic. You're not healing. You're not bringing any sort of revival into people's lives around you. You're not doing anything. You're just kind of stuck in the middle because you're stuck in the middle. You make me sick. You make me want to vomit. What a horrible place for us to be in our life. Because see, we have to understand the church is made up of people. It's made up of the body of believers. And so even though Jesus is speaking directly to this church, he's speaking individually to each person that represents this church. Are we refreshing to this world? Are we speaking a message of healing to this world? Are we just kind of right there? We're neither or. And Jesus says that sort of temperament to my salvation, makes me sick. Verse 17, it says that 
you say. This is after Jesus already said, this is what you are. But then he comes and says, this is what you think about yourself. You say, I am rich. You say, I have prospered. You say, I need nothing. But here's the reality. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, church of Laodicea, they believed they were something they were not. They believed they were a church that was doing it all right. They had it all together. Everything they did was the right thing to do. They didn't need forgiveness anymore. They didn't need conviction anymore. They didn't need to repent anymore. They were probably a church that had a massive amount of people gathering and people enjoyed getting together and they probably had a nice building and everything was comfortable. And when they got together, they played church beautifully. But Jesus says, I don't want you to just play church. I want you to be the church. And you cannot be the church as lukewarm. You cannot be in the middle with God. You cannot be in the middle with salvation. Either I am the way and the truth and life or I'm not, but you need to make up your mind. And Jesus says this throughout his earthly ministry. You're either for me or against me. And this is what he says to his church. I need to know where you are. Because right now you think you're something that you're not. And it reveals to us there's a danger in the pride that we can have. There's a danger in pride. That we can think we're, we have it all together. We can think that we, we've got it all figured out. We can think we're holier than thou. And we may say, well, I would never do that. But there are, there are individuals who call themselves believers that have that mentality. And you may have come across them. You come to a church and they're the type of individual that when someone walks in, they're automatically checking them out and judging them. See, the church of Laodicea is a church that if you're going to come here, you better act like, talk like, and be like us. You better dress the part. You better look the part. And if you don't, you better shape up if you're going to stick around here. Because they thought they were rich. They thought they were wealthy. They thought they were in need of nothing. And they were blind, Jesus says, to their own spiritual state. This is a church that that fell into pride. And if we read through Scripture, we find pride is very dangerous. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, Satan, comes in. The enemy comes into Eve. And asked her a question, did God really say? Eve responds, well, no, we, we, we just can't, we can't, we can't touch it. We can't eat it. And the serpent says to Eve as she's pondering and looking at this tree in which she's not even supposed to be around. So, you know, well, God just is telling you that because he knows if you have this fruit, you'll become like him. And so Eve fell into this temptation of pride that I can become like God, and therefore I won't need God. The nation of Israel fell into the temptation of pride with worship. Even though God was the one that brought them out of bondage of of slavery, they came to a point where they believed that, you know what, we can worship in a way better than the way God commands us to worship. And we can do things better than the way God wants us to do things. And we can make our gods be better than the God. If you read through the Old Testament, you see because of their pride, God brought nations to conquer them. Jesus was tempted with pride. Satan says, if you just bow before me, all the nations of the earth will be yours. We need to understand that Satan, our enemy, will use pride. He will make us as individuals, as children of God, and as a church think that we are something that we are not. 
when I was in high school, my senior year, um, this was like a long time ago, black and white TVs were, were no longer around, but we had color. Um, remember those TVs you had to get up and you actually had to change channel? <coughs> a remote, yeah, awesome, bunny ears, all that. So, so that was shortly after that time. Um, anyway, so I was in high school and I was going into my senior year and I loved playing football. And uh, going into my senior year, there was a lot of hype around our football team um, because we only lost like five people from the year before. We made it deep into the playoffs in the state of Illinois. And so there was a lot of hype because everybody was returning. We had uh, two All-State running backs, a, a second-team All-State quarterback. Our, our entire defense was returning except for one person. And so everybody was like, oh, you know, this is going to be team. And, and so living in town, we had our own little paper. We actually had two of them. And, and you know, in the paper, the front page is, you know, Macomb team ranked 10th in state, expecting huge things. And it was the first time ever that the, the, the school I was at ever got ranked that high. The only other time they were even close to being ranked in the top 10, that team made it to state and lost. And so there's this big expectation. So as, as seniors, you know, we, we came out to the practice field and we got this. We got this. We know, we've been doing this since we were kids. We just show up, and, and so we went through practice very lethargically. We, we, we didn't sprint. We didn't really hit hard. We, we, we just did what we were supposed to do. We just kind of went through the motions of everything. And we, we had this mindset that when we just show up on a field and the other team's there and they see us show up, they're just going to bow down. They're not even going to play the game. I mean, we're just going to line up and we're just going to run right through them. And, and that was it. Here's the thing. We thought so highly of ourselves. We had so much pride in ourselves. We ended up with a losing record. Losing record. That's the danger of pride. Is that we can have so much pride in ourselves. We can put so much weight and value in ourselves. So here's what happens spiritually. Is we put less reliance and we have less attachment to Christ. I'm good. I've been going to church my whole life. I've been reading my Bible since I was a little kid. I know all the songs. I know the verses. I'm good. And the danger of pride in a church is that we can continue to gather as a church. And because we think we've got it all figured out, we never have conviction. We never have repentance. We never humble ourselves before the Almighty God because we're good. That's pride. And Jesus comes to this church and says, that sort of mindset makes me sick. Later, see, they thought they were rich and wealthy. They were completely reliant. They were completely full of themselves. And here's the thing. When we are completely full of ourselves, there's no room for Jesus. When we are completely full of ourselves, there is no room for Jesus. You ever been around someone who's full of themselves? That's the most annoying, aggravating thing type of individual you try to get a word in and you just can't and even when you do get a word in it's always wrong or they change the subject or, or they always seem to have the better idea or even if yours is a good idea they just tweak it a little bit and make it you know now it's good now it's better this church was so full of themselves that Jesus couldn't even get into the door that's why he stands at the door and he knocks This is interesting because last week we looked at the Church of Philadelphia and it, in the Church of Philadelphia, Jesus says that I have the key and, and I can open 
doors that no one else can open. I can shut doors no one else can shut, and doors I open no one can shut, and doors I shut no one can open. I have the key. And yet here he comes to this church of Laodicea and says, look, I am standing at the door, which I have full authority to open, full authority to come in, and full power to do so, but I'm standing at the door and knocking, begging for you to invite me in, but you're so full of yourselves, there's no room for me there. And that's the danger of having a prideful heart. I can be so full of myself that I have no room for God's word here. I've got it all figured out. I'm good. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And Jesus stands and he knocks and he pounds. But it's also a message that Jesus is not going to force his way into your life. He's not going to force you and me to obey him. He's not going to force you and me to live by his word. He wants us all to make a personal choice. So he tells his church, even though you think you're something that you're not, you're wretched. That word wretched means that you're off point. You're, you're out of whack. You're in balance. You ever have an ear infection? You ever have a stand, or I recommend not stand up, but where you pinch your nose and you blow, try to pop your ears. Anybody ever do that? You ever do it while standing up? You want a nice little adventure, just, just try it this afternoon. Um, you will feel completely off balance and dizzy if you do it right because all that pressure begins mounting in your head and, and you just feel out of whack. This is what Jesus is saying. You are, you are out of whack. You are dizzy. You are out of focus. You are pitiable. pitiable. Instead of wealthy and rich, you are to be pitied. Jesus looks at this church and says, you are miserable in the eyes of God. You're poor. You're the opposite of how you perceive yourself to be. You're blind. You're not, you don't see who you are. You don't see who you are as a church. You don't see the truth of God's word being revealed to you. You established your own level of holiness. You're naked, which is a phrase used in Scripture going back to Genesis. When, the, when Adam and Eve had the fruit that God told them not to, they became ashamed of the way God made them. They, they became aware of their nakedness. And Jesus says, you're naked in your sin and you're blind to it. You can't even recognize it. But the beauty of this image is Jesus comes to speak truth because he loves his church. He loves his church. Because the church is his bride. And so we need people who are going to speak truth from the word of God into our lives. We need people who are going to hold us accountable. But it has to begin here. Because we need the confirmation. Jesus is the confirmation of God being the amen. We need the confirmation that we actually belong to God. Jesus tells them that I, I reprove and discipline those whom I love in verse 19. Jesus comes to this church that is self-reliant, has a sinful self-perspective, and tries to bring a God's perspective. And his perspective is this, to remind them that all of us are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John Edwards, in one of his probably more famous sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached that were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you for one moment. For you are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. The creation is made subject to the bondage of your corruption. Not willingly. The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lust. Nor is it willingly a stage of your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals while you spend your, service in, spend your life in the service of God's enemies. 
what John Edwards was saying is what Jesus is saying to this church. What we all need to hear and need that reminder of is it's not about us. It's not about us. We're sinners. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. We don't need this reminder to just keep dragging us down into the dumps of spirituality. What we need this reminder is, is so that we constantly look to Christ. We need to reminder as individuals and as church that we are nothing without Jesus Christ. And so it's not by our own merit. It's not by what we have done in the past or how we've always done things. It's about what Christ is doing in us and what Christ continues to want to do through us. It's not about us. It's about, it's about him. And so Jesus brings this confirmation. He's going to reprove them in verse 19. That's, he's going to bring conviction, which only comes through the Holy Spirit. He's going to discipline. He's going to train and instruct them for God's word. He's going to, he's going to build them up through the word of God and through the truth. See, the confirmation that we are God's people is our conforming to the word of God. That's how this world knows we actually belong to God. That's how this world knows we are actually a church representing Jesus Christ. Is that we are confirming, we are God's people by our conforming to God's word. But then why does Jesus tell them, look there in verse 18. He, he tells them you should buy from me gold refined by fire. Why does he say buy? Here's the thing, when we come back to this context of this church, this church felt they were rich and wealthy and they didn't need anything. They had everything figured out. They, they could bring their own righteousness before God and he would applaud them for everything they are. And Jesus says, you have nothing, but this is what you need to do. It's not to buy your salvation or forgiveness. This is not a verse about indulgences. What Jesus is telling his church is you need to take everything of worth that you think and everything you value and you need to lay it down, all your treasures, and look to the one treasure. It's Jesus Christ. You need to let go of all the things of this world and just lay it down before the fire and it is gold refined by fire, which speaks of the purity it's a language taken out of the, the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi where the people of God, every time God tried to bring reproof and discipline, they'd be like, well, God, when did we do that? Or when did you say that? Or when did we steal from you? Or when did we not do this? And, and every time God tried to reprove and discipline his people in the Old Testament, they brought like a, a question of doubt. But in the very end of Malachi chapter 3, he says, I want, to reprove, I want to refine you like silver. I want to take the sons of Levi, which are the priests, and refine them like gold for the sake of righteousness. This is what Jesus wants to do to this church. It's lukewarm. That's making him spiritually sick. This is the grace and mercy of God. No matter where I am, Jesus comes and he knocks on the door of our heart. And he says, look, I want to make you into something that is beautiful. But it begins by you just got to let go of everything you're hanging on to. You got to lay it down. Jesus desired to make this church into something it needed to be and ultimately desired to be. And the message to this church is the same to us, is that we need to personally confirm who Jesus is by conforming to God's word. We need to personally confirm who Jesus is to this world, who Jesus is to this church, who Jesus is to ourselves and our family, and it begins by us personally conforming 
to the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So where does that begin? First, it begins by acceptance. Jesus is waiting on this church to accept his message to them. We don't know whether they responded, but he calls out in love. And that's the same invitation to us, no matter where we are, if we're opposed to God, if we're on fire for God, if we're just kind of stuck in the middle with God, Jesus calls out to our hearts right now is that first we have to accept who he is, that he is God's salvation. He is the only way to the Father. That is not by our self-righteousness or our own merit. It is only through the Messiah. And he calls out with that message of truth that sometimes it's hard to hear, but we need to hear it. And then it goes into, I have to invite him in. Again, Jesus knocks at the door of this church when in Philadelphia he had the key. He could open in and shut any door. But here he knocks and it's this image. What Jesus wants to do is he stands and he knocks in this moment. He's spoken His word of truth, but now we have to not only hear it, but we have to invite Him in to reprove and discipline us. Maybe you're here and you think you got it all together, but, but the Spirit, for some reason, in this moment, the Spirit is speaking to your heart and your mind about something you know that you're clinging to more than Christ. And you have to invite Jesus in. The danger is you can be like the church. You can be so full of yourself that there's no room for Jesus. You don't let him in. But Jesus is not going to force his way into your life. Then it comes to listening and responding there in verse 22. Who has an ear, let him hear. The Bible says to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's out of James. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, 24, the Bible says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. We stand in this moment right here, right now to come before the Father and say, okay, God, have your way with me. I'm inviting you into my life to do what only you can do. I'm inviting you into my life to reveal maybe things that I'm holding on to, things that I'm treasuring more than you. I'm inviting in you into my life to reveal maybe a prideful issue I have. I'm inviting you into my life to to be Lord and Savior of every aspect of it. And by doing that, I'm confirming not only who you are as God, the Holy One, but also confirming my future glory in you. Right there in verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquer and sat down with my Father on his throne. The confirmation of future glory. When I surrender to God and surrender to Jesus Christ. Not only am I giving that confirmation of who He already is and that I'm conforming, but I am confirming that I belong to an eternal kingdom. I am heirs to the kingdom of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's what He's talking about, that I'm going to be a conqueror as He conquered. The question for us this morning is, where are we? We walk through seven churches, some of them had to get some words of encouragement, some of them rebuke. But maybe you're here this morning and just been kind of in the middle. You haven't been really refreshing. You haven't really been therapeutic. You've just been kind of in the middle. You've just been going through the motions. Aren't you thankful we have a God who didn't go through the motions to save us? 
He went all in, and that's what he calls us to go all in. That's why we say we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? So we can love others. The way we love ourselves is that we go all in. Maybe here this morning you came in thinking, well, I got it all together, but I'm going to go to church anyway. And God has put something on your heart, such a weight. That's not true. There's something that, that he's trying to reprove and discipline in this moment. Maybe you're here and you just hear Jesus knocking on your heart for the first time. It's come to reality that, you know what? I've heard it. I, I kind of believed it, but now I, I understand it. And I've yet to respond to it. That I am a sinner. And that God loved me so much, he sent his only son to die for my sin died on the cross, they placed him in the tomb, they rose again. And, and in this moment, right here, right now, you've heard Jesus pounding on the door of your heart, saying, let me in. And in this moment, you're ready. He's like, okay, I believe. I believe he died and rose again, that I could be completely forgiven. The Bible says when I come to that moment, I have to confess it with my mouth. And what that means is I'm going to come down here and I'm going to say, if anybody wants Jesus Christ, you just come on down. You've got to say, Pastor Mike, I, I need to be saved. I want Jesus. I want to pray with you and celebrate with you. But as the Bible says, I admit and then I believe and I confess. And when I do that, I am saved and I become a conqueror. But if you're like me, you've done that before. And there's been moments in my life, I'll just confess, I've, I've just gone through the motions. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't. Jesus calls me out and says, you know what, let's wake up. Let's stop clinging to this world so much and let's start clinging to me. If you have that upon your heart, maybe you just need to come and kneel before the Father. I'm going to ask Jackson to come up for this time of invitation. However God has spoken to you, now is the time to respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are faithful to us. You are faithful to our Lord and Savior. You are faithful and true. And Lord, I pray for forgiveness in my life where I've just kind of gone through the motions and done the things I think I should do or I know I should do, but there's really been no passion behind it. It hasn't been any sign of refreshment, any sign of healing to this world, Lord. It's just been kind of me doing what I can do. I'm just as guilty as this church. Father, forgive me for having pride in myself. Now, I pray for everyone here this morning, your children who you speak out to in this moment to, to just lay everything down at your feet and just to take up their cross and follow you and to treasure you. I thank you you give us this word. I pray for those here this morning who have yet to accept you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, they know it. Your spirit is speaking to their heart in this moment about that truth. Lord, that you would move them, you would just draw them to yourself, you would bring them to the front to let it be known that they want to be saved. They wouldn't care about anything else but coming forward and let it be known that they believe. Forgive us if we failed you in any way in any time in this place. If we have been lukewarm with your word. As we already leave this place, let us go out to this world with this message in glory to you that we might be your righteousness and forgive us if we failed you we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ Amen let's stand as we sing